This is Focus on God's Word with Pastor Danny Milenkov. I'd like to welcome you all here to Focus on God's Word once again. As we take a look at this fifth part in this six-part series, End Time Apocalypse. And today's subject is solving the riddle of religious confusion. So whether you're here for the very first time or you've been here throughout this mini-series, I want to give you a very warm welcome, especially to those who are here in our Morissette studio at 3ABN here in Australia, as well as right around the world, wherever you may be watching from, either online or on your TV sets, or you may be listening via your radio. A warm welcome to you as we once again go to the very heart of the book of Revelation and as we open up to God's final message of love to the world. Hasn't it been an exciting journey so far? I have been blessed and I'm so excited to be able to open up the, the last book of the Bible, the revelation of Jesus Christ, to discover the wonderful message that Jesus Christ has for each and every one of us, especially those that will be living at the end of earth's history, preparing and anticipating and anxiously awaiting the second coming of Jesus. So before we take a look at this all-important subject, solving the riddle of religious confusion, I want to invite you to pray with me as we seek the Lord to guide and to bless us as we spend time in His Word once more. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we just want to thank you so much that we can open your holy word again. And as we open your word, we pray that you will open our hearts and our minds that we may be willing and able to receive the message from this beautiful book, the book of of revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. May he reveal himself and his precious truth in all its glory is our prayer in, the, in his name. Amen. 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 In our last presentation together, we looked at Revelation's last appeal. We looked at God's final call, God's final message of love as he seeks to call his people, his people that are scattered all around the world, in all different walks of life, amongst all the different religions of the world, His sincere people calling them out of confusion and into His wonderful truth, awaiting His soon return. We notice this scripture in Revelation chapter 18, verse 4, where, where God makes this call. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, this is John speaking, Come out of her my people, that is, come out of Babylon, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. Together in our last presentation, we discovered that Babylon not only represents confusion, but it also represents rebellion against God and His Word and ultimately rebellion against God and His character. And so God is calling His people out of confusion. He's calling His people to follow Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And so that is what we want to take a look at today and discover where does God call his people to? God calls his people out of Babylon, but does he leave them orphans? Does he leave them in no man's land? Or does God have a plan? Does God have, have, have a movement that he has originated, that he has brought in at the end of time where all of his people can come? in order to find safety and security, and in order to follow and practice His truth. Today, there are many churches in the world and many religious um, organizations and institutions. Uh, according to some estimates, there are roughly 
4,200 religions around the world. And, um, and that number is probably a lot larger. Over 30,000 different Christian groups. So as we take a look at the smorgasbord of faith and religion that is in the world, it becomes very confusing, wouldn't you say? Very confusing. Over 4,000 religions, over 30,000, or some have even suggested over 40,000 different Christian uh, groups. It's, it's almost impossible. Well, it is impossible to understand God's truth unless we had what? Unless we had the Bible. And I thank God that we have His Word. Now, why do people choose a particular church to belong to? I want to share with you a number of uh, ideas that have been shared with me, a number of reasons that have been given to me of why individuals choose a particular church. Let me pop them up on the screen for you. There are those that say, I go to this church because it's close to my house. There are those that go to a particular church because that's the church they grew up in. Their whole family goes there. Then there are those that choose a particular church because their friends go there. There are those that go to a church because the people are friendly. Is there anything wrong with going to a church where people are friendly? Nothing wrong with that. I'd want to go to a church where the people are friendly. Everything right with that. There are those that pick up a particular church because they have a wonderful choir and music program. Then there are those that go to a particular church because that particular church has a great children's program. Another reason that is given is that the minister is so nice. Is there anything wrong with going to a church where the minister is so nice? No, there isn't. Uh, But is that the reason we go to a particular church? Not necessarily, as we'll discover. There are those that go to a particular church because of the atmosphere. They feel such peace in that place. There are those that go to a particular church for the food. For the luncheon, uh, they, they love the food there. And so they come week in and week out or whenever there's a luncheon, they are there. And I've come across a number of these individuals. Nothing wrong with that. Then there are those that go because it's good for business. You're thinking, what do you mean, Danny, good for business? Well, there was one particular individual um, who was asked, why do you go to this mega church you know, filled with thousands and thousands of people each and every week? And he simply said, well, I'm a mechanic and there's a lot of cars to service in this particular church. (laughs) It's a lot more profitable than me hanging out in a church where there's 10 or 15 or 20 members. And so it's good for business. And then there are those that go to a particular church because the person they want to marry goes there. And, um, and I have uh, seen this firsthand. Um, I know of individuals that have gone to a particular church because the person they want to marry goes there. How many of you are familiar with that kind of scenario? Okay, a number of you are familiar with that scenario. Um, is that the reason why we choose a particular church? That reason or the other previous reasons that we have looked at? The question you and I need to ask is, How should a follower of Jesus determine which church to attend and be part of? Should we look at whether the minister is so nice, whether the lunch and the food is delicious, whether the music program, whether it's close to our home, whether this this is where our family goes or whether it's good for business or the person I want to marry goes there. Is that how we determine what church to go to? I want to share with you how we ought to determine what church to go to based on a story in 1 Kings chapter 3. King Solomon was asked by God 
What is it that you, that, that you want me to give you as a gift as you begin your reign as king of Israel? And what did Solomon ask for when God said to him, choose anything and I'll give it to you? What did he ask for? Wisdom. Isn't that right? He asked for wisdom that he may know how to lead and how to judge the people of God in a righteous manner. God gave him wisdom. On one occasion, Solomon was faced with two mothers that brought one live child to Solomon and both claimed that that child was theirs. Isn't that right? You can read that story in 1 Kings chapter 3. Now, how was Solomon in the days before DNA supposed to find out who the rightful mother was during the course of the evening, both mothers sleeping with their, with their babies. One baby died and both mothers claimed that the live baby belonged to them. Now, that was obviously impossible. So how did Solomon determine the truth? What did he ask for? The sword. He said, give me the sword and let's chop the live baby in half. Give you half and give you half. And the rightful mother of the baby said, what? No, No. give the baby to her. But the mother of the dead baby, the mother that wasn't the true mother of the live baby said, good idea, king. And the king knew who that baby belonged to. The king knew who the rightful mother was because the king asked for the sword. Now, the Bible tells us that God's word is a sword, a sword. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, we are told that the Word of God is a two-edged sword. And so you and I can only determine the word, the, the truth by the Word of God, only by the Word of God. You go to the Bible to find out what truth is. Then you seek to find a church that is teaching in harmony with, that, with the truth of the Bible. Let me repeat that again in case you missed it. You go to the Bible not to a church. You go to the Bible and find out what the Bible teaches about truth. And then you find a church that teaches in harmony with the Bible. Is that fair enough? Yes or no? You don't test the Bible by what the minister says. You test the minister by what the Bible says. Amen. Because who cares? Who cares what the minister says or doesn't say? What matters at the end of the day is what God says. Amen. That is the truth. So let's discover who established the church at the very beginning of time. Who established the church at the very beginning of time? Notice what we read in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. These are the words of Jesus. He says, and I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build what? My church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. The church, the Christian church was established by Jesus Christ. He is the foundation of the Christian church, not any human, not any human institution, but Jesus Christ himself. That is how the Christian church was established. Notice what we read in Ephesians chapter four and verse four. There is how many bodies? One body, speaking of the church and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. So the Apostle Paul says there is one church, there is one Christian faith. And yet today, as we know, we've discovered there are thousands and thousands of different Christian faiths, many of them teaching very different things. How can they all be right when there is only one Bible and there is only one truth? Well, that's what we want to discover today 
in order to solve the riddle of religious confusion, we want to discover how can there be so many churches when there is only one Bible and when there is only one truth? Where did all these churches come from? We're going to look at that as we go along. Now, we discover in Revelation that God beautifully describes His church. Beautifully describes His church. In fact, in Revelation chapter 12, we have a description of God's end time church. In our previous presentation, we discovered that in Revelation chapter 17, we have a description of the enemy's church at the end of time, the false church at the end of time that is described as a harlot. You remember that from our previous presentation? Described as a harlot, an unfaithful church, but God has a true and faithful church and she is described as a virgin in Revelation chapter 12, faithful and true to God and God alone. Notice what we read in Revelation chapter 12 and verses 1 and onwards. We read these words. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Now before we press on, I just want to note the description of this woman. Notice it says that this woman, she is clothed with the sun. She has the moon under her feet and she has on her head a garland of 12 stars. The moon, the sun and the stars, they are all light giving properties. Isn't that right? This woman, this church has been organized by Jesus Christ, established by Jesus Christ to give light to the world. Jesus said, I am the what? The light of the world. Jesus says, the Bible says that God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Psalm 119 verse 105. Yet the church in Revelation chapter 17 doesn't provide light for the world. Instead, as we've discovered, the church in Revelation chapter 17 does the opposite. It makes all the nations drunk with the wine of her fornication. Isn't that right? So we have these two different women providing, one providing light and clarity and truth and the other providing confusion and drunkenness and everything that is opposite to the truth. Let's press on. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. Uh, We've discovered this symbol, haven't we? This this dragon or this beast with seven heads and ten horns in Revelation 12, Revelation chapter 13 and Revelation chapter 17. And we've discovered that it's almost identical in each chapter. Slight variations that tells us that this system, this system that the enemy is using, that the enemy himself is behind, is working all in harmony. They are all in sync. Now, this red dragon, this red dragon here in Revelation 12 is none other than the devil and Satan. And we discover that in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9. Let's keep reading. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. This is speaking of of Lucifer who became Satan and he deceived one third of the angels of heaven into following him and being part of his kingdom. That's that one third. 
And the dragon, or Satan, stood before the woman, the church, this is the church of Jesus Christ, who was ready to give birth, to devour her child as soon as it was, as soon as it was born. And capital C, child, is a symbol for who? Is a symbol for Jesus Christ. So the devil tried through pagan Rome to destroy baby Jesus and to take the life of Christ. But notice, we keep reading what takes place next. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. We've come across this before, haven't we? In our very first presentation, we discovered that the church of God would go into the wilderness because it would face persecution from the false church and it would be protected by God for 1,260 days. And a day in Bible prophecy represents how long? A year. year. 1,260 years. What will take place after that? Well, now we continue reading in Revelation chapter 12 and verses 12 to 17, the rest of the story. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having what? Great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Let me pause there for a moment. What John here is describing is what took place on the cross. When Jesus Christ cried out, it is finished on Calvary, on Golgotha, the place of the skull. Interestingly enough, when Jesus Christ won the victory over the enemy, over sin, Satan on Calvary, Satan no longer had a place in heaven. He was now relegated to this earth and this earth alone. He no longer represents us in heaven because now Jesus Christ has brought back this planet that Satan usurped from Adam and Eve at the very beginning of time. And now Jesus Christ is the rightful ruler. And now Satan has been cast down. And the Bible says he is filled with great wrath because he has only a short time. His time is ticking. He knows that his days are numbered and that soon Jesus will come for the second time and he will be destroyed forevermore. So now he goes out to destroy the people of God in fury such as we have not seen. And the last days actually begin with the coming of Jesus, according to the book of Hebrews, chapter one. The last days begin with the coming of Jesus and the last days intensify all the way up until the second coming of Jesus. So we are now living at the very time just before the coming of Jesus. Isn't that right? The second coming of Jesus. The Bible makes that very clear. So let's keep reading and find out what takes place next. Because he knows that he has a short time. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and a half a time. That's that 1260 year period. Here it's referred to as a time, times and a half a time. From the presence of the serpent, that is the devil. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that is through persecution, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. 
But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Now we discover that the earth here is a symbol for what nation? The United States of America. The United States of America is that beast in Revelation chapter 13 and 11 that comes up out of the earth. And the earth here provides a refuge for the people of God who in Western Europe, in the old world, are suffering horrendous persecution. And so the United States opened its doors wide for all those experiencing not only religious persecution, but also civil persecution or political persecution. That is what Revelation here is describing will take place. Now let's keep reading. The text goes on and says, And the dragon was enraged with the woman. This is verse 17. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Here at the very end of time, the Bible describes who Satan will be especially angry with at the very end of time. So we have the entire history of the Christian church in Revelation chapter 12. From the days of Jesus Christ, as we have discovered, when the dragon seeks to destroy the male child, which is Jesus Christ, all the way through to as the dragon seeks to destroy the church of God that flees into the wilderness for that 1260 year period. And then right at the end of time, we have the dragon angry and wrath with those who will inherit or those who will be part of a nation that is the United States of America where God's everlasting love, where the three angels' messages will be proclaimed through all the world. So to this group of people, the dragon seeks to especially destroy those who have the commandments of God and those who have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And in Revelation chapter 13, we have how the devil seeks to destroy the church of God that we have identified here in Revelation 12 verse 17 that we will unpack together in this presentation. He he calls up two powers, the sea beast and the earth beast that we have already identified. And through these two powers, he seeks to destroy the people of God. But the good news is, That's not where the story ends because the heart of Revelation ends in what chapter? In chapter 14, in chapter 14, where God describes in great detail those that will be faithful to Jesus Christ, the message they will preach, the three angels' messages. And that is why 3ABN has been established. That is why God has divinely brought this ministry at the very end of time to preach the three angels' messages that will prepare the world for the second coming of Jesus. So that is where we are going uh, together in this presentation. Now, as we continue to look, we discover that God has always had his light bearers. God has had always individuals who have shone the torch on truth. Always. He has always had that right from the very beginning of time. Those that have proclaimed the truth of God, those that have invited those around them to be part of God's people, to be ready for the coming of Jesus. Notice these examples. We have Adam. God raised up Adam to be a light bearer. Then we have Noah and God used him to prepare the world before the flood came. Then God raised up Abraham and Israel. Then God raised up Jesus Christ himself and the early church. And then it was time for God to raise up who? 
the reformers. And as we take a look at each and every one of these individuals or groups, we discover that they began well, but then things fell away. Isn't that right? Adam began well, but then the flood came. Noah began well, but then things went bad and God had to raise up Abraham and the children of Israel. And then God had to raise up Jesus Christ and things began well, but then things deteriorated and God had to raise up the reformers in order to continue the journey. Now, when we talk about the reformers, why did God raise up the reformers? Well, God raised up the reformers to call for a reformation in the church. Now, what is a reformation? A reformation is simply God seeking to bring His people back on the right track. Amen? God seeking to bring His people, seeking to bring the world back to Bible truth, back to the Bible. That's what the Reformation was all about. And God raised up men and women to to bring the world back to His Word. Notice some individuals that God raised up. I'll have them up there on the screen for you. In the 14th century, John raised up John Wycliffe there in England, and he was instrumental in providing for us the English Bible. Then God raised up in the 15th century John Huss of Bohemia, today known as the Czech Republic. In the 16th century, God raised up Martin Luther, and, and, and he sparked through his 95 theses nailed to the Wittenberg church door in 1517, the the Reformation. He was from Germany and the Lutherans, um, the Lutheran faith was born out of Martin Luther and his ministry. Then in the 16th century, we've got God raising up John Calvin from Switzerland and the Reformed Church was established. Then also in the 16th century, we have John Knox, from Scotland, and we have the birth of the Presbyterian Church. In the 17th century, we have John Smith of Holland and the birth of the Baptist Church. In the 18th century, we have John Wesley in England and the Methodist Church is born. In the 19th century, we have God raising up a Baptist farmer there in the United States of America. And the Millerites were formed. The Millerites seeking to call the people of God, the people of the world, especially there in the United States to prepare for the second coming of Jesus. Why do we have so many churches today? It's because individuals were raised up by God to share a precious truth with Martin Luther. It was the Bible in the Bible alone and righteousness by faith. With the Baptists, it was baptism by immersion as an adult. Uh, Then you have the Methodists and John Wesley and Holy Living. And as I've already pointed out, the Millerites, um, they especially focused on the second coming of Jesus. William Miller, who based on his uh, study of Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14, uh, believed wholeheartedly and many others also along with him that Jesus was coming. In 1844, October 22, 1844, at the end of the 2,300 year prophecy that is given there in Daniel 8, 14. So God raised up individuals to proclaim a message for a time. The question is, would God raise up a movement to prepare the world for the second coming of Jesus? The answer is yes. In the end time, according to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17, we have discovered that God raises up Revelation's remnant. 
God, in a very beautiful way, describes Revelation's remnant. God describes this movement. It's not really a church, as we'll discover, a movement that he raises up in order to preach the three angels' messages to all the world and to prepare the world for the second coming of Jesus. So that's what we want to take a look at right now as we take a look at how Revelation beautifully describes God's end time church. Let's take a look at seven identification marks of God's end time church as it is described so clearly, as clear as the noonday sun in the book of Revelation. Are you ready for this? Seven wonderful points that help us understand the truth about the people of God that God has chosen or that God has set in place, that God has established as he did with Israel to prepare the world for the second coming of Jesus. The first point, Revelation's remnant, God's end time church is called the remnant. It stands on God's word alone. Notice what we read. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, it says, And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest, that is New King James, or I like the King James rendition, the what? The remnant of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So God raises up a remnant. Now, the remnant are true to God's word. That is most important of all. Notice what we read. In John chapter 17, verse 17, Jesus says, Sanctify them by your truth. Your what? Word Word is truth. So in order for you and I to discover who the remnant church of Bible prophecy is at the end of time, this first point must be established. God's church, in order to be His church at the end of time, must stand on sola scriptura as Martin Luther so powerfully put it, the Bible and the Bible alone. Is that clear? Yes or no? It's absolutely crystal clear. Notice what we read in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 17. The Apostle Paul writes to young Timothy and he writes, But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, speaking of the church, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of what? Truth. Truth. God's church, in order to be God's church, must be established on the pillar and the ground of truth. Thy word is truth. If the church that you belong to does not fulfill this first and all important requirement, it cannot be God's end time remnant church. It just cannot be because God's end time remnant church must be based firmly and squarely on the Bible and the Bible alone in all its teachings and all its practice. Amen. Amen. I hope that's crystal clear. Let's move on to our second point. Revelation identifies God's end time church as those who keep all of God's commandments. We read that in Revelation 12, 17. They are those who keep the commandments of God. This is so significant that God's people are described as keeping His commandments, not once, not twice, but three times in Revelation. Notice what we read in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who do what? Keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. And finally, in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 14, we have these words. 
Blessed are those who are do His commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. And if you read the previous verse, you'll discover that those who break the commandments of God willfully and knowingly, they are outside the city. But God's people at the end of time will keep all of God's Ten Commandments, including the one that begins with the word remember. What was that word? Remember, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And that eliminates more than 90% of the Christian churches in the world today. Just that one point. Isn't that right? Most Christian churches today in the world keep nine of the Ten Commandments. But the one that God said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, that one has been eliminated from their list of Ten Commandments. Why is this so important? Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. God's people at the end of time will love Jesus Christ with their heart, soul, strength and mind. And because of their love for Jesus Christ, they will seek to keep his 10 commandments. Not to be saved, as we have discovered over and over again, but because they are saved. And Jesus made it very clear that love towards him and love towards our neighbor on these two principles hang all the what? All the law and the prophets. The entire Bible is summed up in love God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. So God's people will be true to him and all of his Ten Commandments be true to his word. Be true to his word. Let's take a look at point number three. God's end time church, according to the book of Revelation, will have the testimony of Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17, it describes God's end time people as those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, now what is the testimony of Jesus Christ? How are we to find out specifically what this phrase is describing? Do we do a poll? Do we go to Google? No. Where do we go? We go to the Bible and in particular... Let's look in the book of Revelation to find out what this phrase, the testimony of Jesus Christ, is specifically describing. And we have the answer in Revelation 19 and verse 10. Notice what we read in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10. John writes, And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant. That is, John is about to worship the angel. And of your brethren who have the what? Testimony of who? Of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the what? The spirit of prophecy. So here the angel makes it crystal clear to the apostle John that the testimony of Jesus, the testimony of Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. It's the prophetic gift. It's what gift? The prophetic gift that God gives his end time people in order to lead and to guide them. Now, it's interesting that the angel here says, I am of your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. If you go and read Revelation 22 verses 8 and 9, there you'll discover that John is about to worship the angel again. And the angel says, see that you do not do that, for I am of your brethren. I am a servant like you that has the gift of prophecy. I am of the prophets. I am a spokesman on behalf of God. In Revelation chapter 1, 
verses 1 and 2, there John says he was given the testimony of Jesus Christ. He was a prophet. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9, John says, I was imprisoned because of the testimony of Jesus Christ and because of the Word of God. We're going to look at that in a lot more detail in our next presentation. But God's end time people will have the prophetic gift in their midst as they prepare the world for the second coming of Jesus. Let's take a look at point number four. It has the patience of the saints. Notice what we read in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 12. It says, here is the what? Patience of the saints. The patience of the saints. Now, I was curious to to understand a little more so what that word patience means. Like you and I, when we think of patience and we talk about patience, we think one thing, being patient. But I wanted to take a look at what this word actually means in its original, the richness of this word that describes God's end time people at the uh, God's end time people awaiting the coming of Jesus, preaching the three angels messages. It describes them as patient saints. Now, are they just simply patient as in patient, patient, just waiting? Or does this word encapsulate a whole heap more? Notice what I discovered. <clears throat> this is from um, this is from the Blue Letter Bible Dictionary, and it unpacks this word patience. Um, and I just want to read for you um, this sentence that you can see there on the on the screen. Point one. The word means steadfastness, constancy, endurance. Notice in the New Testament, the characteristic of a man or woman who is not swerved from his or her deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and sufferings. What does it mean to be patient at the end of time? It means that God will have a people who will not be swerved. They will be faithful. They will be loyal to God. Rain, hail or shine. No matter what the dragon throws at them. And we have just read in Revelation 12, 17 that the dragon was wrath with the remnant at the end of time. And he goes and makes war with them. And in Revelation 13, we have a description of how the devil will seek to destroy the people of God. No matter what, they remain faithful to God in the midst of of the of turmoil and trouble that you and I cannot even begin to imagine. They remain faithful to God. Notice what the Bible says regarding this group of people. Well, before we do that, we'll, we'll get to that in, later on, obviously. It has the faith of Jesus. It has the faith of Jesus. Notice what we read in Revelation 14 and verse 12. It says, Here are those who keep the commandments of God and they have the faith of Jesus. Now, what does it mean? To have the faith of Jesus. Notice a definition from Strong's Concordance regarding what that word faith literally means. It means moral conviction of religious truth, especially reliance upon Christ for salvation, constant in your profession, assurance, belief and fidelity or loyalty. So this group of people have the faith of Jesus. They are loyal. They are true. They are not willing to be swerved. They they are filled with conviction. They rely wholeheartedly upon Christ for salvation. God's end time people will preach the message 
that we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, as an act of incredible love by Christ alone. God's end time people will never, ever preach the message that you are saved by something you do, but you are saved by Jesus Christ and his merits alone. In order for God's church to be God's church at the end of time, it must preach this faith message. And not only that, but the Bible says it has the faith of Jesus. What kind of faith did Jesus have? Jesus had complete faith and trust in his heavenly father. Isn't that right? When Jesus was faced with drinking that that bitter cup in the Garden of Gethsemane filled with the sins of the entire world, Jesus could have walked away. But instead, he prayed, Father, let this cup pass from my lip. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. This group of people at the end of time have the same faith that Jesus had, willing to endure to the very end. For Jesus said in Matthew 24, he who endures to the very end will be what? He will be saved. They have the same faith of Jesus. They have faith in Jesus, which is also a correct translation of the text. And they also have the same faith that Jesus had, complete reliance on the Heavenly Father. They will trust in Jesus Christ alone and always. Amen? Amen. These individuals... Their cry is, though the heavens fall, we will continue to trust and be loyal to Jesus Christ. We will not be swerved. That is the group of people that God is describing at the very end of time. Notice what we read in Revelation chapter 14, verse 4. It says, these are the ones, speaking of God's end time people who are not defiled with women. Or in other words, uh, false religious teachings or doctrines. For they are what? They are virgins. They are true to Jesus Christ, who is the groom. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. God will have a people who follow the lamb wherever he goes. Faithful, loyal to Jesus Christ, no matter what the cost, even as we discovered in Revelation 13, even if their very lives are on the line. Loyal and faithful, just like those three young Hebrew men on the plain of Jura. You remember them in Daniel chapter three? Those three Hebrew men, when it came time to worship the image that Nebuchadnezzar had established, they said, no way. We will not worship the image. We are happy to die for our Lord, for our God, but we will not worship your image because we worship only one God, the true God, the God in heaven, the creator of the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And God will have such a people on planet earth. Here they are also described in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11. It says, and they overcame him. That is God's end time people. God's people down through the ages in the last 2000 years They overcame him, that is the dragon, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives even what? Unto the death. That is the faith of Jesus. That is loyalty. That is what God is calling his people to. That is what God is calling the whole world to. Give their hearts and lives to Jesus Christ, to be faithful, to be loyal to him and to him alone. This is God's remnant at the end of time. Let's take a look at our sixth identification mark of God's end time remnant. It will arise after 1798. 
that is after the 1260 years have come to an end in the United States of America. And we've already looked at that in our previous presentation where, where, where God opened up. God opened up a way. He opened up a door. He opened up a whole continent in order for His people to escape. And that all took place at that period around 1798. So God's church, according to Revelation 12, the sequence of Revelation 12 makes it clear that God's end time remnant in Revelation 12, 17 will arise after the 1260 year period has come to an end. So that's a very important point also to remember. Number seven, and finally, it will be a worldwide movement that will preach the everlasting gospel. That is God's final message of love to the world found in Revelation 14, verses 6 to 12. The message that we have been going through in these presentations together as we have been taking a look at end time apocalypse in this series on focus on God's word. We have been taking a look at Revelation chapter 14 and that all important three angels messages that is to prepare the world for the second coming of Jesus. Notice what Jesus said in Matthew 24 verse 14. Jesus said, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in how much of the world? In all the world as a what? As a witness or as a testimony to how many of the nations? To all the nations and what will happen then? And then the end will come. Jesus made it clear. These are the words of Jesus in Matthew 24. He said, this gospel will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations and then the end will come. We have in the book of Revelation, in the three angels messages, we have the gospel in an end time context. In what context? In an end time context to prepare the world for the second coming of Jesus. Notice these words in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6. The three angels' messages. We have, this is how they begin. Revelation 14, verse 6, John writes, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the what? The everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. This is God's final message of love to the world. This is the gospel that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24, verse 14, in an end time context. I've said it before, I say it again. This is why God raised up 3ABN. For this reason and this reason alone, God raised up 3ABN through the, through the ministry of someone who was not very qualified at all by the name of Danny Shelton. God raised up this ministry in order to proclaim this message around the world. The truth about God and His love. The truth of the of God's final message of love, the three angels' messages. This is a message that needs to go to all the world. And what will take place then? It'll be the second coming of Jesus. And these, these three messages are summarized in these six words. I share them with you again. The first angel's message, God points out what? His truth, God's truth. The second angel's message is all about Satan's lies. God exposes Satan's lies. And in the third angel's message, God says what? It's your choice. This is the everlasting gospel. God's truth. Satan's lies exposed. And we've done that, especially in our previous presentation. And then God finally says, it's your opportunity to choose. You choose. You choose. And what follows? The second coming of Jesus follows. You read Revelation 14. At the conclusion of the third angel's message in verse 12, we have the second coming of Jesus. And that is it. 
this message prepares the world for the second coming of Jesus. You and I are privileged to hear this message. You and I are privileged to understand this message. The question is, does God have a church on the planet that is preaching the three angels' messages, preparing the world for the second coming of Jesus? And the answer is yes. And there is only one church today on earth that fits every single one of these seven identification marks that God has given in His Word. Only one. And my friends, that church today is the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The Seventh-day Adventist Church, my friends, is the remnant church of Bible prophecy. It's the church that God described in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17. Does that mean that Seventh-day Adventists are the only ones going to heaven? Absolutely not. I don't believe that. I don't teach that. And that is not what the Bible teaches. But does God teach in His Word that He has raised up this movement from very humble beginnings to be a worldwide movement today to prepare the entire world with God's final message of love in order that all who are willing may be ready to receive Jesus when He comes the second time? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. It's a wonderful privilege to be a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, to, to, to have the privilege of sharing God's final message of love to the world. But with privileges come responsibilities. What comes with, responsi- what comes with privileges? Responsibilities. It's an even greater responsibility. God has His people all around the world, in all denominations, in all religious faiths, everywhere. And God is calling all all at the end of time to come and to follow Jesus Christ and to be part of His remnant movement. It's not really a church. The Seventh-day Adventist church is a movement that God has raised, not man, God has raised. So let's take a look at these seven identification marks really, really quickly because we're running out of time to discover whether the Seventh-day Adventist church fulfills every single one of these seven. Firstly, it is called the remnant. That is, it stands on God's Word alone. We've been looking at God's Word over and over again, haven't we? So it fits that description well and truly. Notice what the first fundamental belief of the Seventh-day Adventist church is. It's on the Holy Scriptures. Let me read that to you. The Holy Scriptures, Old and New Testaments, are the written Word of God given by divine inspiration. The inspired authors spoke and wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In this Word, God has committed to humanity the knowledge necessary for salvation. The Holy Scriptures are the supreme, authoritative and infallible revelation of His will. They are the standard of character, the test of experience, the definitive revealer of doctrines and the trustworthy record of God's acts in history. The Seventh-day Adventist Church believes wholeheartedly that the Bible and the Bible alone ought to be that which tests everything we believe and everything we practice. It's the very first fundamental belief of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. There are 28 and it is right there at the very beginning. Let's take a look. Well, before we do that, God's, God's church began. And there's so much I could share, but we don't have time. God's church began. More than 150 years ago, the Seventh-day Adventist Church began when, when God's people from all different religions came together. They studied the Bible to find out what the Bible teaches in order that they may live their lives in harmony with the Bible. Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, all sorts came together and based on God's Word, they discovered the truth about different teachings 
that you and I today have been exposed to and that you and I have been blessed by. Let's take a look at the second point. It keeps all of God's commandments. Well, that's that's a no brainer. The seventh day Sabbath is well and truly at the heart of the name of Seventh day Adventists. Seventh day Adventists. It's part of our name. We certainly teach and share that. And all 10 commandments are important. Notice this very interesting statement here from St. Catherine. That is the Catholic Church Sentinel, May 21, 1995. Notice these words. These are not Seventh-day Adventists that are writing this. This is a Roman Catholic journal. People who think that the Scriptures should be the sole authority should logically become what? Seventh-day Adventists and keep Saturday holy. So if you believe as a Christian that the Bible is your sole authority, there is no other option. You've got nowhere else to go but become a Seventh-day Adventist according to our friends in the Church of Rome. Let's take a look at the third point. It will have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Indeed, we'll discover in our next presentation that God raised up the gift of prophecy in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And we're going to look at that in our next presentation. It has the patience of the saints. Indeed, um, God is calling a people. Seventh-day Adventists believe that we need to be loyal to God by His grace and through His strength. It is the faith of Jesus. Absolutely, we believe in, in, in salvation by faith alone, not by works, but by grace through faith alone and through the merits of Jesus Christ alone. It will arise after 1798 in the United States of America. Indeed, the Seventh-day Adventist Church arose. Um, it was, um, the name was given in 1860 and in 1863, um, the Seventh-day Adventist Church was officially organized. So it fits that criteria also. And finally, it will be a worldwide movement that will preach the everlasting gospel, God's final message of love to the world. And the answer is what? Yes, the Seventh-day Adventist Church is the only church in the world right around the world that is preaching this final message of God's love to the world. Now, it's also interesting, and I could spend a lot of time on each and every one of these, but we don't have time. But in Revelation, we have some some more clear evidence of God's end time church, the remnant. In Revelation 12, we have the when and the where of God's church. After the 1260 years and it, would, and it would arise in the United States of America. In Revelation 10, we have the divine origin of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and how God divinely organized and orchestrated this movement to prepare the world for the second coming of Jesus. In Revelation 14, as we have already pointed out, we have the mission and message of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, the three angels' messages. In Revelation 12, we have these two key identification markers that they keep the commandments of God and they have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And in Revelation 3, we have the condition of the end time church of God. There it's described as Laodicea, but Jesus makes an appeal to his people at the end of time to open the door and to be the people that God has called them to be. God has raised up the Seventh-day Adventist church in order to perform the greatest work this universe will ever witness. And that is to prepare the entire world with God's final message of love to be ready for the second coming of Jesus. Before the flood, God raised up a man by the name of what? Noah. God raised up Noah to prepare the world for the flood that would destroy the entire world. Before God 
raised before God sends Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us he has raised up a church, a church that will have the same message as Noah had, and that is to prepare a people who will be safe and secure, not in the ark, but in the nail-scarred hands of Jesus who is coming back soon. Amen? Jesus has raised up the Seventh-day Adventist church according to Bible prophecy to prepare the world for the soon return of Jesus. I want to finish off with a couple of scriptures from Jesus. In John chapter 10 and verse 16, we read these words. Jesus says, And there will be how many flocks? One flock and how many shepherds? One flock and one shepherd. And in John chapter 10 and verse 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they do what? They follow me. Jesus says there will be one flock. There will be one shepherd. My sheep that are scattered all around the world. In confusion, many of them will hear my voice, will hear my voice from my word. They will hear my final message of love to the world and they will follow me. Is that your decision to follow Jesus Christ, to follow his truth? to follow this beautiful message and be part of this movement that God has raised to prepare the world for the second coming of Jesus. What a privilege, what an honour to be part of this movement that God has established. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for your word once again. Your word has made it abundantly clear what your truth is and where we can go to find truth. You have made it abundantly clear that you do have a people, you do have a church, you do have a movement that you have raised up to prepare the world for the second coming of Jesus. Father, may we all choose to be part of this movement, sharing this final message of love with our neighbours, friends and loved ones, preparing them for your soon return. For this is our prayer in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen and Amen. Listening to Focus on God's Word with Pastor Danny Milenkov, a production of 3ABN Australia Television. If you have any comments or questions, send an email to radio at 3ABN Australia.org.au.